The Triathlon Show 388. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, we have the fifth Q&A episode of the year on the topic of run training in triathlon, and this one is with scientific triathlon coach David Duche as co-host. David has been on the podcast before, but as a quick introduction for those of you who have not heard him, he's been uh, a coach with Scientific Triathlon for coming up on three and a half years. He is from Belgium, but uh, he lives in the south of France. And as an athlete, David's mainly doing half and full distance racing. He has done a lot of them or his many years in the sport, including some really mountainous and gnarly long distance races that go beyond what you would get in your typical Ironman. Most listeners have probably already listened to uh, part one of the Run Training Q&A, which was in episode 385 with James Teagle as a co-host. And the reason that we're doing a part two is that we simply got so many questions for that uh, Run Training Q&A that we decided to do uh, a part two so that we could cover all of the questions and not leave anything out. And that's what we're going to do here today with David. But before we get into the Q&A, a big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration. Uh, Precision Fuel and Hydration help athletes perform at their best with electrolyte and fueling products and with free online tools education and a patented sweat test you can use the free fuel and hydration planner on their website to get a personalized plan for carbohydrate sodium and fluid intake and you can also book a free 20 minute video consultation to chat through your plan with the athlete support team you can get 15 percent off your first order by using the code tts23 on precisionfuelandhydration.com and thank you to Zenate. The Zenate Indoor Swim Trainer is a unique dryland swim trainer that allows you to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. It is a perfect tool to complement your pool and open water swimming, as it allows you to do very specific power and technique work, including working on your catch and your core activation, and it makes it easier to stay consistent even when you can't go to the pool. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days, so if you don't love it, just send it back. And you can get a special bundle including the swim bench and a bunch of Senate training plans and on-demand workouts on senatewinter.com forward slash TTS. Now without any further ado, here's the Run Training Q&A part 2 with co-host David Duche. Welcome back to That Triathlon Show, David. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's nice uh, nice to have you back and to uh, help me get through this list of questions. It's a pretty long one. And uh, as listeners will have seen, this is part two. We did part one with uh, James Teagle a few weeks ago. Uh, let's just dive right into the first question, which is from uh, Matthias, who asks, is there any evidence in favor or against streak running in general? Uh, for example, is there clear evidence that five or six running days are more beneficial than seven yeah um i don't think in fact that there are um that there's really evidence that says okay seven days of running a streak uh, of seven days of running is much better than five or six uh, days well at least i haven't seen any research saying that um matthias he's talking about a marathon under three hours so i would also say if you want to go sub three, you don't have to run seven days a week. Um, you can really do good with just five days of, of running. Um, but in terms of, of evidence, I don't know, Mikael, maybe you, you, 
you have seen evidence about it, but uh, I don't, I didn't see anything that says, okay, you need to run seven days or, or it's better than, than, for example, five to six days of running. I, I do think it is important though to know that if you, you know, seven days of running, it is always running and it puts a lot of stress on, on those legs. So don't forget that they, yeah, a recovery day can do really good. Um, staying off the legs, even if you are seven days, if you are running for seven days and let's say the seven days is just an easy run or, or something like I like to call a time on feet run. Um, yeah, it, it, it gives you stress. It's not like a real recovery run. Uh, it gives stress on the legs. So you, you don't want to get injured by it. And, um, in that perspective, I would say, okay, maybe it's better to do five to six days uh, of running. Um, it, you, of course, as a runner, you need volume. You need good volume, consistent running. Um, do you need seven days? I don't think so. Uh, it all depends of, of course, which athlete you are too. But in general, certainly for a sub three marathon, I wouldn't go with seven days of running. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, and yeah, I think if you... If you're used to uh, high training volume and training every day, then I would instead maybe go for yeah, running five days a week and then maybe cycling or swimming two days a week, even if your focus is on running. So uh, I think that that's better. But I think that's also what Matthias is asking. He's asking. He's not asking if seven is better than five or six. He's asking if five or six is better than seven. So he kind of has that. Uh, being, I, I interpret it that way anyway, that he's all, he's already thinking in that way that... Um, but I don't think there's clear evidence, but I think what the, the thing that exists is when you look at observational studies of elite runners, in some of them you see that uh, depending on which cohort you look at, that they tend to have a rest day. Of course, they run 12, 13, 12 times per week because they run twice a day on on six days a week. And and it's not the same with, with all elite runners, but but a lot of them, I think in East Africa at least, they tend to have one day one day completely off from running. But I, I, anyway, as you say, for for a three-hour marathon, that's that's a different story, and and I think that just coaching-wise, from an uh, experiential perspective, I would say that five or six running days, uh, six at most, would be what I would recommend for for. Then his next question is: um, uh, What are the diminishing returns regarding long runs? If I take eighty kilometers per week of running if, if that's my volume i assume he's saying is there any evidence suggesting that long run should be uh, a percentage of that volume or uh, as long as i can tolerate or just maximum distance um, so yeah what's your take on that well evidence-based I, I think james probably also already said something in the in the first part but um, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't think there's really like evidence saying, okay, you need to do 30%, for example, of your weekly volume or something. Um, what I, well, at least for my athletes, I think, yeah, you certainly need to watch out with going longer than, than three-hour sessions, um, just in terms of injury. Um, I hardly ever give three-hour sessions to my athletes, even if it's uh, let's say you're training for an Ironman or you're training for a, just a, a marathon. Uh, yeah, three-hour sessions, hardly ever. Um, it might be closer to, to the 230 to 45 hours. Um, I, I'm always a bit 
cautious with injury. Um, it may be experienced too, but I think it, it's really important. You, you shouldn't forget that we are also doing other sessions in the week and, um, and, and yeah, the, the, the volume, the weekly volume might get up too high. Uh, if you, if you put in a, a very, very long session. So I would say after three hours, there might be diminishing returns. Um, you're stressing really your body with three hours of running. And I would say this is enough. Is this evidence-based? No, it isn't. Um, it's more experience-based. Um, but yeah, so nothing too long, I would say. Um, what's more important, I think, is really running, consistent frequency of sessions, um, total weekly, monthly volume. Um, I I have seen in literature uh, monthly volume that it is a strong predictor of your marathon time, in fact. But it was only so, well, it was only significant if your long run was longer than 21K and the average run distance of a session was, was longer than 10K or at least 10K. Of course, 21K for a long run isn't that long. Let's say if you're a very slow, if you're a slow runner, yeah, it, it might be a long session, of course. Um, so I, I would go higher than 21K, of course. Um, but yeah, nothing longer than, than three hours. And certainly when I use these sessions, well, long sessions closer to competition, I would even get the volume a bit down, but just put in more, more race specific, uh, intensity. Um, which would be more in the in the two fifteen to two hour thirty sessions. So, um, yeah, it's it's also how you see it, how you mix it with with all the other sessions. Of course, um, you you need to look at it over the weekly volume, monthly volume, um, and and the consistent work. But a long run is important, of course. Yeah, I think uh, there are definitely diminishing return, returns. But um, in the question about evidence, no, there is no evidence about this. Is you have to find out what, what works for you. But but I think for a lot of a lot of athletes, we talked about that in the episode with James. Probably maybe focus too much on their long run. Um, I mean, some things we didn't mention, but I think are uh, very valid things to think about. Is that you don't need to do a long run every week necessarily. Um, also yeah how long the long run should be so i don't i don't think it's a so matthias poses some options a percentage of volume or as long as one can tolerate or maximum length i don't think it's about that it's more about minimal effective dose what is the what is the minimum that you can get away with and and still perform and achieve your your goal i think i think that's what it comes down to because then the then you can be as david said consistent with the rest of your your running so I have um, one, so we're recording on the 18th of April. So Boston Marathon was yesterday. I had one one athlete running Boston Marathon and did really well, uh, ran a 2.47. And uh, his longest long run, I'm looking at his training peaks, was two hours, 24 minutes. So so it's not uh, nowhere. I, I generally don't go near three hours. I would say 2.30 would be kind of the maximum that I go up to, unless it's somebody who is just training to complete rather than compete so they are a bit slower and and they just need to be out for a long time to to get to a certain distance because when you're training for a marathon i do think that training for the distance becomes important as much as training for the time so um, a slower runner might do a 30 kilometer run or a 32 kilometer run as their longest run 
whereas a faster runner might be out there for much shorter time but still get in 36 or 38 kilometers so yeah it's it's about finding finding what works best for you but but i think it's like a minimal effective dose perspective uh is is what i would what i would keep in mind with the with the long run what is the minimum that that allows you to achieve your goals and uh, then the final part of the question uh hill reps for vo2 max uh, how can hill reps be so effective in VO2 max training? Dan Lorang, for example, suggests running three times thirty, no, three times ten times thirty seconds. Uh, to run back is around one minute for a thirty-second fast uphill, so one to two ratio. Isn't that too long recovery in order to elicit maximum time at ninety percent VO2 max? Um, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, um, maybe to answer the first part, how can hill reps be so effective? Uh, yeah, th- there have been studies uh, already a while ago that have shown hill reps really have a positive effect uh, effect on 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 VO two on economy speed endurance a bunch of other stuff. You have so much motor unit uh, recruitment. You engage uh, really a lot of fibers. So if you use hill reps, uh, that that's a big part of it too. Engaging fibers, having a good technique. Um, where I want to comment is in fact that if you do 30 seconds on with one minute recoveries, I would say maybe the goal of that session is not only your your VO2, your aerobic max. It's also about that there's a huge strength part there. Um, and, and their technique would be also very important, I think, because that will translate on the flat when you want to run fast, for example. If you have one minute recoveries, um, you'll be better recovered than than doing, for example, 30-30. So you can start your next rep always with, with excellent, well, with good technique. Um, so, you know, in general, I would say, okay, it's not only, we, we are not only aiming here on VO2 with 30 uh, seconds and one minute recoveries. If we want to reach more time at VO2, yeah, research has shown that it's better to do 30-30s, 30-15s. Um, but of course, I can't talk for Dan, Dan Lorang, but I would say he's also uh, focusing here on another goal and not only um, VO2 max or, or uh, maximum time at VO2 max. Um, that's my view on it. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Like, If, if you want to maximize time at VO2 max, then then the recoveries should be shorter. So, so that's not the goal if you jog back down to the hill so that you get that one to two ratio which is true like that's that's what it ends up being when you do hill reps so it's more about as you say strength and motor unit recruitment economy so maybe you can so but yeah you could maybe maybe you can improve your vo2 max even without maximizing your time at vo2 max uh, and or even if you don't maybe you improve your speed at vo2 max or just your your view to max utilization so i i agree it's not i i don't think that that session is necessarily maximizing time at vo2 max or even vo2 max adaptations but but there are other benefits to to those hill reps so so yeah i think um yeah i think hill reps are good uh, you also need to consider the grade as i've done some sessions where i'd used something like a 10 12 percent hill and i just found that that was too steep, so my legs were burning, but I didn't get my heart rate up and my uh, ventilation up properly, properly because the legs were more more so the limiting factor. So, so you have to think about things things like that as well. 
Um, and yeah, you could do hill reps on a treadmill or on a long hill so that you don't have to walk all the way back to the start if you want to uh, minimize the recoveries. Um, but yeah, I think they are good to uh, good to have in your rotational workouts. But but ideally, you maybe don't put all your eggs in one basket. So you don't do only track workouts or only hill workouts. You can use a mix of mix of both of them. Of course. Plus, don't forget that um, hills also put an enormous stress on, on tendons. Um, so let's say if you get some more recovery in, yeah, it might be might be less intensive, well, less less aggressive for those tendons too. So um, might be another another thing. Yeah. Uh, let's try to speed up a little bit because that was one question and we're already almost 15 minutes in. So we, we, let's try to be more concise. The next question is from Scott who asks, can we run too slow? Um, so is spending more time at the top of zone two more beneficial than low zone two or top of zone one in a five zone system? Yeah. Um, well, I'll try to be brief, (laughs) um, but, uh, well, what is important in this question um, is, is we want to stress the body um, in general with training. Um, uh, what I think is important in that, uh, well, we want to stress mitochondria and all uh, to be, let them become more and more efficient and, and all things. But if we, let's say, I think it's important to stay below your aerobic threshold, below the, the LT1. So if that means it's a jog, well, you should stay and, and just jog in zone one. If it's a zone one run, okay, let's stay in zone one. Eventually it will go up and you'll be, be, be running in, in, in zone twos uh, somewhere or, or higher in zone twos. So um, can we run too slow? I don't think so. You'll always have an effect. Of course, if you want to have more bang for the buck, you might want to get a bit faster, but trying to stay below the aerobic threshold, for example. Um, uh, so then if... On the other hand, if, if you have an athlete with a higher aerobic threshold, I wouldn't recommend always running close to that. For them, um, you, they might need to be uh, running a bit slower, which will still have lots of stress on the body. And if you would be running always close to that aerobic threshold, yeah, you, you might just overstress it uh, with, with all the other sessions. But um, okay, can you run too slow? I, I don't think so. But you might get a bit more, again, bang for the buck when you run a bit faster. But let's say keep it below the aerobic threshold. Um, uh, this depends. Of, this is very individual, of course. Yeah, I think uh, just a couple of quick things to add to that. It, I mean, it depends on the, the entire picture of your training program. So maybe if you're a low volume athlete, then you can you can get more bang for your buck as david says by spending more time in zone two than in zone one let's say but if you're a higher volume and and also if you have quality quality sessions in there but if you're a higher volume athlete uh, or maybe then so then then sorry i got it i got it wrong the thing if i if you're a lower volume athlete and and especially if you maybe don't have so many quality sessions or either one of them or both of them then it, it can make sense maybe to focus more on the zone two, even mid to high zone two, because you have the ability to recover. But if you have a high overall training volume or you have lots of other important, harder sessions that you need to do, then um, I think it's more important that the easy runs are really easy. So so you have to look at the entire picture of your training program. And and that's it. I don't, I don't think you can run too slow uh, as long as you 
do that, but maybe maybe for some few athletes in a special in those scenarios with where they have lower training volumes and maybe not so many other quality workouts for whatever reason, maybe they can get a little bit more bang for their buck by going a bit higher within that aerobic zone. But but I think uh, that's more the icing on the cake, and and for most runners, I don't think it's an issue that they're running too slow. Uh, the next question is from Lars. Uh, this was a long one, so let me try to shorten it a little bit. Um, his, so this is an interesting one because he writes that my current 5K ability is probably 1910. So I don't think he has actually run a 1910, at least not uh, recently. Uh, for long one kilometer VO2 max intervals, uh, the target pace is usually given as slightly faster than 5K pace, so 348 per kilometer for him. Uh, yet when I run these intervals self-paced to be hard but somewhat even, which I also heard is the best, I end up at slightly less than 340 pace with considerable variance between in, in uh, between uh, variance between individual days. I once did a yeah, let me see here. So I'm pretty sure that I do not underestimate my 5k ability. So can I run? All my VO2 max interval significantly faster than my 5k race pace, uh, or should I intentionally slow down? I think that's a question in in a nutshell. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it's it's a bit of maybe a difficult one. Um, I think it's good to use that self-paced. Um, well, the self-pacing where you see you can run faster. Now, probably the question is that um, you are running faster than you can do for example on a 5k and you wonder why you can't do that on a 5k uh, I, I interpreted it a bit like like this and then i would say okay maybe you need to to start playing a bit with the sessions and and get an extra like you're doing four times 1k maybe get an extra interval in and maybe go down on recoveries to 30 to maybe nine second recoveries and see how you are holding that pace that let's say if you are holding the 340s as you are doing with your friend or, or 335s, um, maybe that says, well, by, by lowering those recoveries, you're also working that fatigue resistance and maybe it's a sign that, okay, your 5K could be harder than a 1910, for example. Um, if you want to focus well on the sprint triathlon, I think there you need to, to drop the pace a bit back and... Um, uh, focus more on okay on your specific uh, sprint uh, distance pace because that won't probably be your personal best on a 5k uh, coming off the bike um, i don't know if this answers uh, the question yeah let me just read it again my question is whether i should intentionally slow down the intervals to be closer to goal pace um yeah okay i i think i think you nailed it uh or i agree with what you said that um self-paced or self-paced intervals is good rather than like having a fixed kind of target especially i think this is a, an important thing as well uh you think that your 5k ability is 1910 but you haven't actually run it so so until you have run it then it's all a bit speculative anyway so so i think it makes sense to go on self-paced and but I, even if you had run a 5k i still think that that's that's fine but it's yeah it's it's about the session session design a bit as david said i think four times one kilometer that's a bit too short if you're running the one kilometer repeats in under four minutes then you're getting less than 16 minutes of of work time for a vo2 session where you would want to get to let's say 20 minutes ideally so so you would probably want to get to five kilometers and, and maybe then start 
decreasing the recoveries, uh, as David also said, based on or depending on how how uh, long your recoveries currently are. So I don't. I think the quest. Uh, my answer to your question is that you don't need to intentionally slow down to be closer to the goal pace. And uh, yeah, I don't. I, I don't. There's no rule that your VO2 max intervals have to be your 5k pace or anything like that. So so it's more about really kind of my rule of thumb is that you want to go close to as hard as you can for the session but not quite as hard as you can you want to have basically one rep left in the tank that you could do if you if you wanted to for for those sessions so um so yeah i think yeah i think that's that's our answer the best that we can give <laughs> and uh next one william asks what are the key differences between run training for runners and run training for triathletes let's he has a bunch of sub questions but let's just start with that general uh question first of all i think normal run training you're just running probably you'll get some more volume in um you you are just yeah you you are running and you got some recovery um if you're a triathlete you need to do you need to see it with, with all the, the different sports so you better run a bit less and and of course you you'll be biking um which helps your fitness too so that's already i think a big difference in terms of volume doing a bit less um for triathlon for triathletes and doing maybe a bit more volume frequency of of running for uh for runners um secondly depending on on the distance you're doing uh, yeah the the intensity might also be totally different of course let me ask you some of the sub questions that William asks here, and you can you can just give like a rapid fire answer to each of these. The first one is: Are there certain kinds of intervals or workouts that are common in running programs that triathletes should avoid? I would say, as a runner, you might you could get in a bit more well high high intensity stuff in. Uh, where you as a triathlete you know it's a very yeah of course running is also a very aerobic sport but if you're for example a thousand meter or three thousand meter runner or 5k runner you might want to get in a bit more sport, um, intensity than for a triathlete where it's really yeah uh, sub-threshold mostly so um so yeah I, w- I would say watch out in for triathlete watch out in terms of intensity where you might want to do a bit more or higher intensity as a, as a as a normal runner and are there some run workouts or interval structures that runners don't typically use that make sense for triathletes a brick run i <laughs> 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 don't think they will they will do that um probably they'll have a bunch of sessions that triathletes do i would say um certainly I, mean, I, I, I think i think maybe one thing that triathletes do that runners don't do so much would be your kind of Ironman pace run. So let's say, let's call them your like LT1 runs and so on. I think a lot of runners not, wouldn't do that. They would kind of be a bit more polarized maybe, uh, but that not all of them would, would be that either. So, so yeah. Yeah. Maybe and maybe not because it's a, it's a, if you're on LT1, it's a, what we talked about, it's a good stressor. Um, so probably in running, you also do those high endurance zone two sessions, um, uh, if you, if you're just a runner. So not sure, um, if that's a big difference between, between both. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think maybe there's a periodization difference. I mean, this is at least how I, uh, when I coach running, which I don't do that often, but I have done it, then maybe I would add those kind of high zone two workouts in the winter base training when we're not really doing much, if any, intensity. But, uh, well, we're def- definitely always doing some intensity, but not so much. So then, then you have more room to recover for a runner that is from those high zone two workouts. But then when we get kind of closer to racing, it becomes more easy or race pace and race pace for running is higher than race pace for triathlon always because you're doing it fresh so so in terms of but triathlon that's when you start to add those uh kind of high zone two workouts if you're especially if you're preparing for something like an ironman or a half ironman and that's your race pace which it is for a lot of people so um so so yeah i think periodization wise there's maybe a diff but also that's just my kind of my, my how, how i would coach so everybody's different there um yeah i think i think we kind of covered most of the things i i think the, the main one as you said is the intensity I, as a triathlete you're always going to run tired and and you're always basically going to be sub threshold uh, or threshold or sub threshold so 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 you you're training it does that doesn't mean that you shouldn't ever go above threshold of course in training you can do that but i mean the emphasis on those workouts is significantly less than it would be for a for a pure runner definitely um yeah and next the next question is from ashley who writes um let me see here i noticed the trend the significant trend of most questions in part one revolving around injury and long runs why do we all believe running an injury to be a foregone conclusion maybe it's just our approach of going big instead of often what does science slash experience say around doing many shorter runs per day while forsaking the longer except the occasional specificity or race um yeah so that's that, that i believe is the question in a nutshell well so we kind of talked about this already but anything to add there oh, not directly no what does the science say um science or experience i, I think the question is from okay um is it better to do more shorter runs for some uh, to 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 stay off injury um than, than always doing those long um yeah. Again, even even, two, even 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 two runs a day instead of one run a day. Yeah, so okay, okay. Runs. I I would say I have used this myself to two days, uh, two days of uh, two runs on a day. Sorry, um, because it could be a good. I think it could be a good uh, sort of a warm up before going longer. Um, you have that rest of co- of course in between, so. Y- you could even play a bit with the recoveries in between. Um, but it could warm you up to go longer. If you're an injury-prone athlete, maybe it is a, uh, yeah, it, it can be an, uh, an effective way to, to do that. I don't use it a lot. Um, I think professional runners do use it a lot just to get that volume up. And um, um, so, yeah, um, if, is there evidence? I don't know. Uh, I, I can't say. Yeah, I mean, observationally, there is a lot of evidence that t- top runners are running twice a day, generally speaking. Yeah, no, but I mean, if it's better to run, a, uh... yeah, yeah, that that I that I can't, that I don't know, that I don't know. But I, I think, I think for a runner, it makes a lot of sense to to do that. I and and I think, in terms of uh, the notion that there was a significant trend of most questions revolving around injury and long runs. 
I've, yeah, I think I think that's a very uh, good observation, and and I agree with it. And I think that we have maybe a tendency to overemphasize and overestimate the the long run, uh, but also may, maybe even long runs in in general. And actually, a good good demographic to go and look at the training of would be short course triathletes, and we know how great runners they are, and and for them like, I, there are many short course triathletes that don't for them a 75 minute run is a long run for them so so you don't have to go super long to to be a really really good runner and and then when you get especially in your especially if you're not training for a specific race and and then you can only you can build up the long runs when you're training for a specific race where you have to go long but but you don't necessarily need to do too too long long runs or too many long runs so so I think there there is that, and we also talked uh, in part one about the run walk strategy, and and I mentioned that even though it's not something that I have used, I think that it's probably underutilized, especially among injury prone runners, to do like a run walk strategy in their training and in long runs in general. So I think, yeah, as a just an overall take, I I do generally agree that kind of more frequency instead of more volume in individual runs. I would agree with that, uh, and and then just only when you're getting really specific for for racing, you you have to really kind of focus on building up the long run. But even then, do it do it sensibly and 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 individually for the uh, the durability of the of the athlete. So then we have a bunch of uh, shoe related questions, and the first one is from Paul. Uh, I'm curious for your running shoe thoughts. Are you using super shoes in races? Who should and how often are you training in them? Uh, for myself, I do use them, but in fact, not that much because they are so expensive <laughs> and they don't have that much mileage, of course. Um, so, so yeah, but are they beneficial? Yes, they certainly are beneficial. I think nowadays you even... Yeah, you, you need to run in them because, certainly in competitions, I mean, because um, everyone is running in them. They are, athletes are running faster with them. So you better have a pair maybe <laughs> to, to, to run also a bit faster. Um, so, yeah, certainly beneficial. Um, there is also, uh, yeah, there is some research saying, well, may, probably more and more research is done now on, on the shoes, but there is some research saying that even at low speeds they are beneficial. I have, I, I did some research. Well, uh, um, that was that was a recent that was a recent podcast episode. Uh, I'll put that a link to that in the in the show notes with Dustin Dustin Joubert's research. Okay, um, yeah, well. It shows that at 10, what I've read, at 10 and 12K an hour, so 940, 8-mile pace, it it is uh, beneficial, but it is smaller, of course, than at a faster pace, which is is a bit logical too. Um, uh, um, I think what is something you want to take in mind too is that it can give you a psychological benefit. Uh, I've I've had some short discussions with athletes who have asked me, okay, should I run in them in, in sessions? Mostly I would say, yeah, do run with them, but um, do not do every session in them. Um, because if you then come, race day is there and you run in them, they, they have a good psychologi psychological benefit. You feel faster. 
and they that might also give well improve your your um, yeah your your time on, on on the run for example or uh, you just feel good with them so I think it's it's something you need to uh, you need to take in mind too but on the other hand. I would also, this is more experience based from what I've heard from some athletes, but also for myself, watch out with them. They are um, sometimes pretty unstable. So watch out. Uh, they could trigger trigger some injuries due to instability at, at foot and the ankles, ankle level. Um, yeah. So I, I think even there has been done a research, there's no real conclusions there, but on navicular bone stress fractures, again, this is something I didn't have a stress fracture, but in my first year running with, with carbon shoes, I had an injury on the navicular bone. So is it related to that? I don't know, but I think it might be. Um, even with, uh, that, that was the topic. That was the to- that was the topic of, in that same episode. With uh, yeah, so I'll 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 put everybody who hasn't heard that and are interested in this to- in these topics uh, should go and listen to that, which will be a link in the show notes. I think if you want to maximize performance, you should be running in them in races. But of course, nobody's going to think less of you if you run two minutes slower or faster in a race other than yourself. So so it depends on if you're basically just focus on maximum performance uh, or not. But if you are, then yeah, you, you should be using them in races. And how often do you train in them? I think this is kind of like you said, uh, there are <laughs> many different things that you could consider there. I think you should do some training in them. Uh, definitely as you get closer to the race, you want to build up a little bit of race pace training with them. But you don't necessarily have to do a lot of training in them. Although I would, I also don't think it's a wrong thing if you want to do all of your fast workouts in them. I honestly, I've gone both ways. When I first got them, I was so afraid of putting mileage on them that I only used them in one training run, like a really short one before each race, and that was it. And then when I was training for a marathon recently in uh, this winter, I used them for all of my quality workouts. And um, to be honest. I think both options were good, but but the one thing that I liked about using them in all my fast workouts was that it gave me a confidence boost in my training because I was just running slightly quicker in training, and it made me feel happy about my training and and uh, have belief in my training. So so I think that e- equally to getting a boost on race day, getting a boost in your training can be can also be very valuable. Yeah, certainly they. I, I think they they are really good for those speed intervals, longer speed intervals. Um, you'll run probably faster with like same power heart rate or something. So uh, then then when you run them with, with normal shoes. So certainly for the interval trainings. And if you're especially if you're training for something like a marathon, so you're putting in big miles, and then they will help you recover faster from those sessions. So, so that's an, uh, that's a, a, something to consider. The, and I think that's where I, I would say, if you look at, let's say, professional triathletes and what they are, what is best practice among them now is a lot of them are using the super shoes more and more in their key sessions, basically all the time. Not all of them, of course, but a lot of them are doing it just because it makes sure that they can recover for the next one, which usually comes around pretty quickly. Um, and the next question, I, th- I don't think we need to answer that one. It's basically, uh, it's the same question almost. Do you recommend using super juice during fast interval sessions? So, um, yeah, I think, and, and do they have any 
And do they have any benefit aside from speed or just training in normal shoes? And there we kind of mentioned the recovery aspect already that you don't get quite as sore because they uh, have that uh, special foam. Then, uh, yeah, there are these questions from Florian are kind of the same. Let me see if there's anything. How This one is interesting. How do I choose non-carbon shoes for training so that they are compatible with carbon racing shoes, heel-to-toe drop, etc., or the other way around? Is that something yeah. you think about? Well, um, heel-to-toe drop, I would say um, choose a shoe. Uh, well, let's say choose a carbon shoe, which is in, in drop more, the same as, as, as a normal shoe. If you have an 8-millimeter drop, I would go with the same one. Um, and what I think is important in, in this question is, is the stability of the shoe. Um, we all know that, okay, the carbon shoes, they are sometimes less stable. If you are used to running like myself, you need a stable neutral shoe. Um, then you might, for myself, I looked for a, uh, well, one of the more stable carbon shoes, which is not that easy to find, I think. Uh, they, they will always be like a bit of wobbly, of course. But I would say in general, try to, to mimic a bit the same thing as in, as in your normal running shoes. That's what, yeah, that's what I should do. Yeah, I think the, on that st- that's not it's, this is not an answer to Florian's question at all, but what you mentioned there about the stability is quite interesting because... Um, Quite a bit of my running here, I end up going over segments of cobblestones, and uh, both in training but also in some races. And and actually, which shoes I choose depend a bit on whether I have cobblestones or not. Because on cobblestones, I find that the more wobbly Nike Alpha Flies, for example, are not, and especially the uh, before they were <laughs> disallowed, the Adidas Prime X day, they were even more wobbly, I found. So, yeah, I didn't really like them at all for anything other than running in a straight line on asphalt. <laughs> um, but but the shoes that I do like for twisty, turny courses and, and uneven ground like cobblestones, etc., are the Essex Metaspeed shoes because they feel more like a traditional racing flat. They, they're really good in that sense and are not wobbly at all. They are just very, very stable. So So that's a good one, too to think about as an option depending on what your races are like and your training terrain is like uh then the final question here on shoes is from john how much care is needed in ensuring that the body is able to withstand the additional stabilization demands of uh super shoes in a long race where every step creates much more wobble than with traditional shoes and thus cramping late in the race can easily occur have you found this to be a problem and how can one mitigate against this? Um, the, the cramping part, I'm not sure if that will be really consequence of, of the wobbling of the shoe, um, but probably um, strength and well, strength work comes handy here to, to, to mitigate against this. Uh, work on foot, ankle, lower leg strength and mobility. Um, then I would think at plyometrics, um, using a BOSU ball, uh, yeah, mimicking like st- uh, unstable under, um, f- undergrounds and, and, and doing exercises on them, um, to, of, so, so the, yeah, the ankles become used to this and, and become stronger, uh, and otherwise maybe again, the stable shoe search for a stable shoe. Uh, yeah. 
I haven't found this to be a problem, but I, I agree. Lower leg and foot and ankle stability and strength work, that would be what I would uh, recommend, basically. And and as we said, training in those shoes as well, uh, to, to some extent. Then the next set of questions is about strength training. Uh, and the first one is, uh, again, from John. What are the two must-do strength and conditioning exercises you have found to be the best for improving running economy, building resilience, and preventing injuries? Two exercises. There are a lot more exercises. It's difficult to say just two uh, really good exercises. I would more split it up in um, working firstly on a hip and uh, core stability, certainly the hips, is, is important and the muscles around it. And then as secondly, I would say, okay, exercise with the focus on the lower leg, ankles um, and feet as they can trigger also issues higher up the chain. So in terms of exercises for myself, for that hip stability, I would think, well, and for, for my athletes, I would think certainly uh, um, bridges, lots of bridges, um, getting a more posterior pelvic twist, in fact, which can because it can avoid like overdoing certain muscle groups, uh, not be being a quad dependent runner, but using your glutes and, and running from those hips. So I think, um, in terms of exercises, then I would think, yeah, the, the, some, some, some bridges, but with weights, without weights, doing them on, on a, um, on a Swiss ball. Um, yeah. Uh, for the lower legs, of course, against plyometrics, um uh, yeah plyometrics but you can also they, they will focus on ankles but they will also focus on on, on strengthening um higher up the chain like uh, doing uh, jump squats where you where you focus on those bigger muscle groups uh so plenty of exercises not just two um i think yeah but if we need to mention two certainly the, the, the bridges for me would be part of them um, just because of that hip angle. I think it's important, the hip angle. Again, this, it's, it's a lot experience-based, but um, it can avoid issues, uh, knee issues, uh, tendons around the knees that are overused. So, um, yeah. As, as you say, there's a lot of exercises, but I think that's the, the challenge here uh, for us to pick two. I like, I like bridges uh, as a suggestion. Uh, for my two, I'm going to pick, well, the first one I'm going to pick is going to be an injury prevention exercise. And, and I think each person should pick based on what their weaknesses are. But if I'm picking for myself in this example, I would pick a hamstring exercise. So I would pick either Nordic hamstring curls or deadlift let's say i pick i pick a, a deadlift actually um so yeah but either one of them uh, and that's working on my weakness on running in terms of injury which tends to be the hamstrings if i don't strengthen them and then the other one i would do would be uh, a single leg exercise just focused on more on the performance side of things so uh that could be a step up or a split squat um i'm gonna pick the step up actually i've found that maybe the some some athletes struggle a little bit with the split squat getting some knee pain and things and the step up i think is a bit more gentle on the body uh and actually it also has the additional advantage that you can actually practice a proper push off off the box so it's even more similar to an actual running stride so so yeah step up step up and deadlift would be my two 
I also think of lunges. They they are also very yeah. They very are they are yeah, yeah in in that same group definitely with single leg uh, kind of quad quad dominant. Um, and then the next one, next question is from Michelle. Any advice on how to keep tendons strong? Plyometrics, heavy strength training, hill work. What do you think? Yeah, um, an important one is not overdo it. Uh, which is of course difficult to know sometimes um, am I running too much or uh, going progressively up building building your volume up your frequency up it's very important and give it time that's already a way to uh, to, to strengthen and avoid um, issue, <coughs> issues around the tendons um, again we talked about it a good technique while running um, yeah um, ten, if you have Issues with tendons, it's always an overuse of, of them. So you need to search, okay, why am I overusing them? Um, which can be very technique related. And in that perspective, um, not only well, weights and, and exercises will, will help, but I think what's also very important is being aware of your technique, technique while running. You can do as many exercises as you wish, but if your technique isn't good when running, yeah, you still might get uh, injured in those tendons. So, um, yeah, think of your of a good technique uh, while running. Um, how to keep them, well, to get them strong, I would say certainly on, on the level of the Achilles tendon. Um, eccentric work, like just uh, simple step downs, really good to, to strengthen and lengthen them um, without and with weights. Um yeah, and, and in general, of course, strengthening the tendons is, is, is doing certain strength exercises in general. So, um, um, yeah, that, that's that's important. Um, maybe even um, probably something not a lot of people do, but maybe a, a, a barefoot warm-up or a cool-down or just at home barefoot walking. Because it it's, it strengthens uh, the, those sh- small muscles and tendons of the of the foot and the ankle. Um, running on trails, of course, watch out! You do not sprain your ankle. But um, they running on trails on even ground is something very effective to to strengthen. Uh, yeah, the the lower leg, in fact. Um, so yeah, hill work for sure. Um, but it also puts a big amount of stress on tendons, so watch out with that. Yeah, yeah. I think this is we we talked about this quite a bit in part one, but it's it's mostly about progressing slowly because, as you say, it's an it's an overused thing. Tendons are slow to adapt. It's like muscles can adapt quickly. Your cardiovascular system can adapt very quickly. Your tendons and ligaments they adapt slowly your bones adapt even more slowly so so yeah you have to basically when you if you're if if you're a new runner or a new athlete off the couch and you're starting a training program your your cardiovascular system will start to adapt really really quickly and and you will feel and get fitter within within a couple of weeks you will you will feel a significant difference already 
but your tendons won't have adapted at all at that point yet uh, or very little at least so so that's the thing to always keep in mind that different systems of the body adapt at different rates and and that's why with running especially we have to be so careful because it puts a lot of stress on the tendons and the bones and they don't adapt as quickly as the uh, as the muscles do or as the cardiovascular system does so i think the main thing is not not so much about the tendons will adapt, but they will adapt slowly. So it's about how quickly you progress, and and it's a uh, not doing anything stupid. So or so I should say how slow it's it's about how slowly you you progress. And then, of course, I think you should do strength training, and and there are many things that you could do, like running on trails and and things like that. Uh, as David said, hills. But but at the end of the day, I think ninety percent of the question what what the question wants to get to is how do you not get injured how do you not get tendon injuries and i still think that it's 90 percent of that comes down to not necessarily actively strengthening the tendons but um applying your your progression uh very gradually uh so gradually that you don't run into issues more so than anything um and then uh, we have a bunch of questions on running form and biomechanics. Uh, this one is from Paul. I've heard you say that you don't believe in analyzing running form or trying to shift running form. If that's the case, what is the pathway to avoiding injury and improving economy over time? So I guess he addresses that question to me so I, I can go first on this one. I think I think it's, I'll, I'll caveat this by saying that of course there are some things that are very clearly uh, some runners need to change some things about their running but it's more about let's say at least moderately experienced runners that have uh that already have a decent base level of fitness and and they have achieved a certain level of running and their bodies have adapted to how how they're running in terms of running form and and there, there are no obvious glaring mistakes in how they run like completely overstriding or doing something something glaringly obvious that okay this is something to correct so it's not that i say that you should never change anything it's more that for a lot of um runners of the demographic that tend to listen to this podcast that well of course there are athletes of all different levels but a lot of athletes here are already have quite a bit of experience and uh and i think for a lot of a lot of you guys it doesn't necessarily make sense to to think too much about changing your analyzing your running form because even if you can see a mistake you probably cannot or not see a mistake but see something that maybe you could do better whether it's uh, a greater hip extension or whatever it might be the issue might not be or you, you cannot necessarily just change that but it will not actively anyway because you're limited by hip mobility so so I think the body will adapt, and that's why I think that doing strength training is really good, and and also some form of mobility, which can be done as part of the strength training as well, to give the body the maximum chance to to find its optimal running style. So you basically give the body the tools, and then it um, it will adapt uh, to converge towards something that works for the individual. And um, yeah, so the pathway to avoiding injury has in my opinion there are some athletes that yeah if i see them running with overstriding i would try to correct that of course but so i'm not saying that it's never the case but but it's yeah in in a large group of runners 
to whom usually services like running gate analysis are marketed for a large group of runners, I don't think that those services are really useful. What I could add is um, if you want to avoid injury and improve economy, um, you might want to get your frequency of running up. Maybe this is something we already talked about, for example, two runs in a day or something. But if you are running three times a week, well, maybe put in, if you have time, a fourth run. Because it's about adaptation, doing something repetitive. The body gets used to it. Um, so that might, well, I, I certainly think it will improve your economy just by running more. Of course, watch out with it. Uh, again, progressively. Um, so that might be... Yeah, that's my answer on, on, on improving economy. Uh, I think you already said it, Mikhail, the body is adapted to a certain uh, run for. So watch out with like changing things excessively. Um, even if you really know, okay, I need to do that certain thing different. Um, yeah, d- do it really slowly. And, and if it's a huge... Um, manipulation of the body watch out with it with it because the, the the body can react in a different way and if you have been running for 15 years in a certain way and then changing too much you might get injured um while your aim was to run more economically um but it's it just how the body uh works it's not adapted to something it, it doesn't know what it is so watch out with excessively changing things so work with small small difference yeah 100 percent uh, agree with all of that um uh, this one i'll let you open this kind of worms what are the optimal biomechanics for running referring particularly to uh ground strike ideal knee bend etc well, i think you already mentioned one as um uh overstriding um Avoid a too low stride rate, for example. Um, avoid uh, what, what's called breaking. So let's say you land on your foot, but your foot is very far, far well, very far, is, is in front of your body, is too far in front of your body. Um, that's also something I think you should avoid. Um, so that means you, you'll sh- you should land more in the central of your, of your body, of your mass. Um, do you does that mean well there's also a part of the question okay where has the foot where does the foot needs to land on the ground um does that mean heel midfoot forefoot i would say i've seen heel strikers uh, they 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 can also run pretty fast as long as it's in the center of your body it's good so well I would assume it's 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 okay. Um, so I would avoid breaking. So that foot should be more centered and and not too far in front. Uh, so that's that's an an important one. Um, also avoid trying to have well avoid having too much rotation. A lot of runners, sometimes in, including myself, in fact, I see this uh, going too much left right. This is like a sort of waste of energy. Um, you need to have a forward movement. Um, so also something you could focus on by an important thing here is probably the hip stability um, that really helps you have that forward velocity uh, yeah those are some 
for me, some of the optimal biomechanics, I think. Um, are there other ones to add? Yeah, I forgot one, I think. The, um, Mohammed is talking about the ideal knee bend. I would also say, okay, don't run with a big angle. Well, I mean, um, let's say you, you need some stiffness in that leg, so the angle shouldn't be too too small. Um well, a, a smaller angle, I mean, a smaller angle is, is better. Uh, don't run as you are sitting, for example, on a chair. Uh, that would be a bit too 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 hard on the quadriceps. But really, okay, uh, have that upright position, uh, a bit more stiffness in, 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 the, in the lower leg or in the leg. Uh, so those are, for me, some, some of the points to, to, to have optimal biomechanic in, in running. Yeah, I, I agree with those, but I think all of those points are more what are some mistakes to avoid. Uh, so then within that, there are still, I think if you're asking for what is optimal, I don't think we know. Uh, I don't I don't know that it exists. Uh, maybe it exists for each individual. But one, and I'm not an expert in this either, so, so to be honest, I don't feel that I can really properly answer the question. But But one person to follow and and he has been on the podcast before so and i think we talked about this topic is max paquette uh, he's a biomechanist and uh, researcher at i think in tennessee uh, at one of the universities there so he's really good follow him on twitter and listen to his episode on the podcast and and he talks about some of the things but last i checked the research on on biomechanics it's quite inconclusive there, there are always different findings but it really depends on how you define the study and uh, yeah it's to me it, it seems like there, there's not a whole lot of super clear evidence probably because it's different for different individuals even different at different speeds so maybe even different for a triathlete versus a runner because for a triathlete you have been spending a lot of time in the tt position usually before you get off the bike and run so um yeah for me it comes down to again trying to give the body tools so giving it a certain um base level of strength and mobility and and then it will adapt over time um, but as david said if you can run more frequently then it will adapt better and uh yeah that's that's what i would do but again there are definitely mistakes that you can you can correct but what is optimal i i think that that's almost an impossible question at least in, at this point in time to answer at least for me um next question Van asks, is it best to run with the form that feels natural, even if not pretty? I am a good runner and good and have a good run off the bike, but one arm swings out way more than the other. I can run with better, efficient, seemingly efficient form, I guess, but it is slower than running naturally. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say if your run, your natural run is with a swinging arm and you are going fast, I would say don't mind about something else. Uh, it's, it's okay. Um, uh, yeah. Don't try. Of course. Yeah. A swinging arm might get you over rotate a bit at, in the upper body. So I would, there I would say, okay, try to avoid this, but it seems that you are running faster than, than when you try to run more efficient. Um, uh, yeah, well, at least of what you think is more efficient, um, but I would say keep it, keep it as this. Uh, you run well off the bike, 
why change it um, if you know that maybe that more efficient form will go slower and that's not what you want it comes down to speed eventually so yeah prettier is not the same as more efficient <laughs> i think is the no, no, uh, the conclusion here um you know who else ran with uh with one arm swinging out more than the other Haile Gebre Selassie. so okay. <laughs> i think i think okay. if it's good enough for him it's probably good enough for van uh no no offense meant of course Ivan, who is i'm sure he's a very good runner um there seems to be a general agreement on some elements of technique, like keeping a relaxed, upright body, uh, increased cadence, uh, a b- more being more important than greater stride length, and landing under your center of mass. Beyond that, there are various differences in technique and or cues used by coaches. How far do you go in modifying an athlete's run technique? Do you have a preferred method? And where do you draw the line? This one is from John. I, for myself, I don't really modify an athlete. We, we've already talked about it. It's very individual. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't change too much. In a lot of cases, you you even don't really know, okay, how is your athlete's technique of running unless you have some video footage or you saw someone running. Um, but, yeah, still, I wouldn't change too much. Uh, again, we talked about it. It's something uh, you, you've been running for for a long time like that so um don't try to change it excessively um things of course you can use are like uh, strides where you ask to, to to focus on a certain upright technique uh, a good stride rate um you can work with hill strides hill sprints um but i'm not really yeah um trying to really change an athlete's run technique in fact um i don't know for you michael no same yeah again i it comes back to what i said before i i like to try to give the body tools by strength training and mobility uh and uh, and then let the body take care of the rest really um yeah i'm trying to think if there's anything else but i mean i, I agree with those things uh relaxed upright body um cadence is very individual so there's no one cadence some some athletes should run at 170 and some should run at 190 but but i think john's point here is that rather than overstriding, you should increase your cadence so so i I'm, i agree with that and and then he also says landing under central mass which you pointed out before david so yeah i think those are those are all good basic points and if if you do all of those then then you're probably doing doing fairly well um yeah i think on on the topic of the relaxed up relaxed body relaxed upright body um some athletes could benefit from focusing a bit on their uh, their breathing patterns uh, because some some athletes get a little bit of an erratic uh, breathing pattern when they're running without even thinking about it. So so that's something that you could think of and that should or that could make you more relaxed and uh, potentially more efficient. So yeah, um, that's that's basically it. Yeah, what what I do like to ask if I talk about technique of my athletes, I do like to ask them. When they do a hill stride, for example, or just a normal stride, it's, it's really work from from the hips and glutes. I don't know what's your opinion on it, but for me, I think it's it's really important to get a stability in in that region. And um, um, 
you, you get much more power out of it. In fact, you, you feel it too when you do a hill stride with with like a bit of a better technique. Let's say, um, uh, yeah, the feet a bit wider, really on level of the hips. You also feel that you are more powerful than when you would, for example, be running with with the feet very close to it, to each other. Um, then, then you have more like the hips going up and down and up and down. That's not really what you want. You want them to be like more, uh, yeah, horizontal and going forward. And so, I, I think for for me, hip stability is really an important one in in run technique. I agree with that. And and but I think a lot of that, of course, awareness during the running is really important there. But but it's also about just making sure that you have the the hip strength and stability when you're doing exercises like bridges and so on that you mentioned. Then. Th- then that will be a whole lot easier when you're running and in, in many cases it will be automatic um and i had something else that i was thinking of oh yeah the one thing that i would say as well is that it it's actually i i i think i have a feeling i'm not very super confident in in this but i have a feeling that um athletes use of quads versus glutes and hamstrings differs quite a bit on the bike in a triathlon depending on their bike fit and their bike position so some might be really quad dominant and some might be much more loading their glutes and their hamstrings of course there's always an element of of quads in there but but relative to to others and and i think that that might also especially in a longer race where you really can fatigue those muscle groups uh it it could really impact what is the best way to run for each individual in a triathlon so that's where i think we talked about brick runs a bit in part one and um i think i think this is another example of why brick runs are useful to actually just focus on being aware on your fatigue levels in different muscle groups when you're running off the bike and and then maybe trying to focus on using less fatigued muscle groups a bit more so it might be that for some athletes a bit more quad dominance in running can be useful in triathlon and and for others a more glute dominant and hamstring dominant depending on even your bike position and and and, fat- and fatigue resistance in those different muscle groups yeah um i agree but i do think that it's important to spread out in fact the the um yeah, to, to spread out over different muscle groups, to avoid like overusing uh, a certain muscle group for fatigue reasons, but also for injury reasons. Yeah, uh, 100%. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that's it uh, in terms of, well, there is one more actually. I'll, I'll just answer that quickly. Uh, this one is from Everett. I've been doing your pre-run mobility routine diligently for several years now, and I love it. I'm wondering if you have any updates for it, such as a jump rope or mobility board. So, um, no, I don't have any updates. The pre-run mobility, I don't even have a link to it at the moment. I kind of lost it in my cleaning up on my Google Drive, but it probably still maybe exists somewhere or Everett has downloaded it when I had it out many years ago. Uh, It was just uh, a few basically dynamic, uh, dynamic movements to wake up different muscle groups for running and 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 i think it's still a good routine so i would definitely encourage you to keep using it if it has been working well for you but i don't have any updates to it so no, that's the answer to the question uh, but all right uh, thank you so much uh, david for uh, helping you. me with these questions and uh, we'll do it again another time okay thanks see you 
I hope that you enjoyed this Q&A. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com and I do have a number of links in them as well. Uh, I mentioned the episodes that I've done with, uh, Dustin, with Dustin Schubert and Amol Saxena, Dr. Dustin Schubert and Amol Saxena, I should say. Uh, Dustin Schubert has been in two episodes, actually. The first one on the original Super Shoe study uh, that he conducted on and his uh, colleagues. And the second one on the follow-up in slower runners, and I'm also saying I talked about uh, the potential for navicular bone stress injuries uh, when transitioning to super shoes. Then I mentioned Max Paquette as somebody that I trust for uh, biomechanics information, and also Bobby McGee. They have both been on the podcast before, so I have linked to those episodes. And actually, I just saw this morning, I'm recording this the day after we recorded the actual Q&A, a very recent study on increased oxygen uptake in uh, runners when they were doing high intensity intervals uphill versus uh, on flat ground or flat treadmill i should say so so that was related to one of the questions that we had but then of course the thing is that they did the same protocol which was five minutes on 90 seconds off uh, at high intensity so faster than threshold or higher intensity than threshold so basically on on that topic if you can do the same workout running uphill as running on flat ground then you can potentially have a higher time near vo2 max that's what this study showed and and i have seen other studies in the past showing the same thing the issue is if you're doing it outdoors and you don't have a very long hill where you can just stand still and keep running up then your recovery times will be longer so of course when the studies compare these things they compare it with uh, the same recovery time and and they do it on the treadmill typically so so that's but it's an interesting study to look into and maybe if you are uh, of the optimization mindset uh, something to consider to do some hill uh, repeats on the treadmill actually and do high intensity intervals that way Next Monday, I interview Paul Newsom, who is a triathlon swim coach that many of you will know, know either from his previous appearance on that triathlon show or just in general from being the co-founder of Swimsmooth. Uh, he will be back and we will have a good discussion on swim training and swimming. If you want to improve your triathlon performance and want help to achieve your goals, then consider working with a scientific triathlon coach or a training plan. We have options for athletes of all different levels, for different budgets, and no matter the size of your goals. A few points to highlight that reduce the barrier to get started is that we have no minimum commitment term nor startup fee for coaching. And for training plans, we have a 100% satisfaction guarantee for plans purchased on our website and an exchange guarantee so that you can exchange your plan for another plan if you purchase it through Training Peaks. We also have consultation and customized plan options so you can find out more and contact us on scientifictriathlon.com and we can discuss your specific goals and needs and see what's best for you. Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Use their free fuel and hydration planner to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs and get a specific and effective race strategy and book a free video consultation with the team if you want to refine it further. Use the code TTS23 at checkout for 15% off your first order. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, stamina, and swim training consistency. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days and get the special bundle including the Swim Trainer and a number of Senate training plans and on-demand workouts on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.